The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu backslash tridentroompodcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's podcast, NPS student Mike Morris sits down and has a drink with NPS alumni and Marine Ryan Tice. Today we sit down with you and you know, we, we drink some coffee because it's uh, 8 a.m. in the morning and it's a little too early for uh, you know bourbon or beer. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, according to most people, anyways, yeah, yeah. I suppose there are there is that. Uh, population that yeah. might think it's the perfect time <laughs> <laughs> to pour a finger of bourbon but um the you know normally uh, we could sit in the trident room and have you know with all of our colleagues and mm-hmm. classmates and even professors and faculty and have uh interesting in-depth discussions if you choose to mm-hmm. um now you can also, when it reopens, you can play shuffleboard if you yeah, want yeah. to. It's going to be a regulation-sized shuffleboard in there, which is pretty cool. Um, and so that's what uh, – did you did you have an opportunity to, to frequent the Trident Room? I know you have a family with some young kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's funny is, I, you know, you, you asked some background questions about here. I actually quit drinking while I was here. So it's been over 11 months. I wish I had quit drinking since, during the first quarter, but since I found I've, my consumption rising. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard that from a lot of people. I think that's one of the, the challenges, uh, you know, in our line of work, in the military especially, is that, uh, you know, you come with these high op-tempo environments, a lot of uh, energy, aggression, type A personalities, and a lot of that translates into the social aspect of of commiserating and camaraderie is is around alcohol and it's you know it's how we bond especially in a place like the marine corps and you know you come to a place like nps and i was you know i was looking forward to going to the trident room on a thursday afternoon that that was fun uh but at some point you you start to realize like is this becoming an obstacle you know i got to go home and be a, a father to three kids and I gotta wake up for class the next morning. It's not that, it's not as easy as it used to be when you're 22 years old and you could just go tie one on and have an innocent night of uh, debauchery. I don't know if debauchery is considered (laughs) innocent, but. Innocent and debauchery. Yeah, but it's it's one of those things. So I I quit, you know, I I quit drinking. Uh, It's actually, I didn't realize how positive that change would have been at the time. I thought it was something I more just needed to do. to protect myself, you know, so you don't, I don't, I didn't get the DUI or I didn't have any, you know, life-changing mistake, you know, that ends a career or, you know, you hit rock bottom. It was just like, you know. But it goes beyond that. Yeah. For you too. Is that one of the things that helped you focus? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you right now that immediately there was immediate change in how I approached you know, my studies, my curriculum. I don't believe I, I don't think I could have been able to finish my thesis, you know, perform so well in the classroom and then been in, involved with all of the other things I had done on campus. 
Um, if I had been, you know, going home every night and having a couple glasses of wine, having sleeping poorly, you know, just always operating at a deficit, and that's that's something I didn't realize was impacting me negatively. You know, just one glass of wine it, it interrupts your sleep, and um, I didn't realize, you know, with three kids, my son waking up in the middle of the night, like, you know, sleep and rest is at a premium. So. You know, I think, you know, advice to any student here is to start a good habit while you're here. There's so many great things to do here and there's so many great opportunities. Pick up a good habit. And I think in the military, one of the downsides is we tend to come to a place where there's not a lot of structure that we're used to in a military unit. It's easy to pick up bad habits. You know, there's not a senior officer breathing down your neck, making sure you're on time somewhere. Or there's not the tyranny of the urgent as you have in the operating forces where you kind of have you're living by deadline to deadline um, and you're only responsible for yourself and I think one of the things I've noticed here is that uh, you know, there's a lot of people who have a hard time with that sense of freedom the lack of structure the lack of oversight the lack of someone telling me what to do um, and you see it from junior officers, the ensigns who come here out of the Naval Academy or NROTC, uh, to majors and lieutenant colonels who struggle. So it's it's not uncommon, I think, for people to come to a place like here and pick up bad habits. So my encouragement to any student here is is come here with a sense of how are you going to pick up a good habit to go back to the operating forces and and kind of employ what you've learned here. Uh, and that's just it. That's one of the, uh, the points of NPS, I think. Part of the uh, culture here is that uh, we, the institution uh, wants to be relevant to the fleet and the warfighter and what we're going to do in the future. And I think I hear the point you're trying to make is if you don't make the most out of here, how is the fleet really going to benefit? Yeah. So one of the one of the misconceptions I think of NPS um, for a lot of service members, and I've, I've talked to students from all services and unanimously, whether it's the Air Force, Army, Navy, or Marine Corps, people who haven't been to NPS think that NPS is some sort of vacation. That you're gonna come here and golf and enjoy you know, the wine here and really just take an opportunity to relax. And that was the expectation I had coming in here. It's like, you know, I'm a pretty good student. I've done, the, you know, I've, I've excelled in the classroom before. Um, this is an opportunity to rest from, you know, three and a half years of a very high op tempo, two deployments, you know, um, a lot of personal turmoil. I can come here and rest. And then it wasn't rest. It wasn't rest in the sense that like you can just loosen up the pack straps and think that you're going to get a degree and you know go back to the fleet the same as you were before you know here's an opportunity to understand what's happening at the intersection of academia civilian um, you know business you know business academia and DOD and really at MPS, like all of those roads intersect here in many different ways. And, and I think this is an opportunity for you to just, for all students to like break out of the small stovepipe that 
your service has put you in by virtue of your specialty, your MOS, you know, your past experience, and kind of branch out and explore these hidden corners of academia, business, and DOD that you would never have been exposed to, you know, if I was in an infantry unit back at Camp Pendleton. So here, this is an opportunity for everybody to make most of your 18 months, two years here. And I would say that the hard thing is focusing because there's so many great things here. There's so many interesting topics being researched here. There's so many great discussions happening that I found it a little overwhelming at times wanting to be involved in all of it because it was all interesting. And then you start to realize, well, I have a thesis to write. I have priorities at home. So, you know, my first six months, I was going to every brown bag, every discussion, every workshop, um, my first six months here. And then I started to realize, okay, I don't need to go to all of those to feel like I'm being fulfilled intellectually. Uh, when I went to officer candidate school, it took me a couple of weeks to adjust to kind of military, uh, the way of the military, you know, getting yelled at all the time and just the physical demand. Um, but, you know, once I, that light bulb went off for me, it was like, it, it was transformational. Um, and I credit the decision to join the Marine Corps as really the best decision I've ever made with my life. You know, and I say that I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a husband, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in Christ. But that was the, that was the seed that started, I think, the journey that I am today. At least that's, that's my take on it. So I needed to be in the Marine Corps. I needed the Marine Corps and um, the Marine Corps wasn't something that I, I, I even knew I wanted. Uh, my boss at the time, I was first year out of college, and he essentially says, are you going to talk about joining the military or are you actually going to do it? <laughs> you know, and that was, you know, I, I kept saying, yeah, I'm going to go in the military, but I, I was not doing anything to further that. And I, I said, you know what, you know, this was a, a, a gut check, like slap in the face, like stop talking about it and go do it. And he says, go to the Marine Corps. That's the best outfit out there. And this was a guy, a Viet Army Vietnam veteran officer. Um, he had two sons who were active duty Army officers. And he says, go to the Marine Corps. And literally, the next day, I went down to the local Marine recruiting office, which was right down the street, about two miles away. And I walk in there, I start filling out the form. They saw that I had a degree. They said, hold on. <laughs> you, you, ha you just graduated college. Why don't I go, why don't you reach out to the officer selection office down at Rutgers? And um, I reached out to them and they're like, come down. Started PT and it, it, you know, it was game over for the, from there. And you know, the Marine Corps is always about self-improvement, seeking self-improvement. Um, and I've really, I've really benefited from, you know, that the, the culture of excellence in the Marine Corps, like just the people around you, uh, really driving you to, to be a better version of yourself every day. And of course, the time you came in then was kind of at the height of, uh, you know, operations and uh, yeah. in Iraq and 
in the CENTCOM AOR. You've spent a lot of time there. Yeah. It's been our country's focus for so much of the last 19 years. And then now here we see ourselves in a time where we have, if you want to define them as rising threats, mm -hmm. uh, where we see great powers like Russia and China uh, coming to, uh, I don't want to say indicate their, you know, any intentions, but um, the United States can view itself in a decline, or we could see that there are other rising powers. And whereas you know, we were living in a unipolar world, mm -hmm. we were we were free to focus on the threat, the transnational threat of terrorism. And now we see more of our resources needing to be devoted to uh, countering influence mm -hmm. from other great powers mm -hmm. that are on the rise. And that's something else that you wrote about. Um, great power competition, the arena in the Arctic, mm -hmm. which um, coincidentally, I had actually uh, written a response paper in my international relations class, and I chose to focus uh, on the topic of Arctic great power yeah. competition. And so that struck me when I found your article. I was like, oh, I'm not you know, I'm not the only person. My, yeah. my instructor, my professor, uh, happens to be a China expert in, in his research foci, and um, he he kind of said that he feels that the Arctic is being ignored in the United States as one of those arenas where um, power competition exists. Yeah. How do uh, how do you view the Arctic? Well, you know I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I, I think we saw signs for that uh, years ago. And and actually, what was interesting about my research um, was that. The Navy has been thinking about this for years, for years. They've had councils and meetings and conferences on this, dating back to the early 2000s. You know, they've been, they've been talking about receding polar ice, warming, you know, access, the, the increase in human activity in the Arctic. It's, it, it's, it's a balance of resources. And, and I won't say that I, I know what you know, those senior leaders were thinking, it's not, it, it wasn't a priority, you know, for the last 20 years. And we have finite resources, you know, and that's the thing with, you know, I'll go into grand strategy, you know, from a grand strategy piece is, is how am I matching my finite resources with the potentially unlimited aims that I'm trying to achieve in the world? You know, so I have to prioritize, and sometimes it's it's hard to prioritize. What Russia has done, though, is they have taken advantage of our focus to the Middle East, and they have started to develop infrastructure, Arctic capabilities, um, commercial development in the region to be able to take advantage of it. Why is the question? You know, what does Russia gain from it? That's a really good question, I think, because uh, you can understand why Russia being, so much of its landmass being in the Arctic, is interested in the resource and economic um, opportunities that the Arctic represents. But then we see uh, another um, we see another 
line of activity mm-hmm. from Russia, which is a greater, milita- uh, greater militarization mm-hmm. of the Arctic. What kind of strategy from Russia do you think that indicates? Well, it's, it's clear that those sea lines of communication are, are extremely important to them. And, and you have to ask why is, you know, they've taken the long view in the Arctic, and I, I talk about this in my, in my article, is like, you know, both China and Russia are taking a long view uh, on the Arctic. I, I think it's fair to say, you know, I'm not an expert on climate change or I'm not a climatologist, but I'm pretty sure that within my lifetime, the Arctic will be ice free and it will become a, a sea line of communication. And I talk about that in the article. You know, and if you look at it from a geostrategic perspective, a lot of it has to do on just how we view the Arctic. And, you know, we, we take a very Eurocentric approach to the Arctic because of, uh, you know, Sweden, Finland, the Arctic nations that are in Europe, um, the GI-UK gap that was very prominent in in Cold War strategy, um, whereas the Bering Strait, you know, the Asian side of the Arctic, as I call it, receives a lot less attention. But if I'm a military planner and I and I consider the geography of the Arctic, you know, if I want to control the Arctic in that trans-Arctic shipping lanes, the Bering Strait would be the most feasible place to try to control that because it's 51 miles wide. It's only a couple hundred feet deep. It's very shallow and not a hard place to deny access to. And the current maritime agreement, it's it's kind of a two-lane highway that goes through there. Russia has owns one half, we own the other half. Um, so, you know, when we stop looking at just the European equities in the Arctic and we kind of slew over to the Pacific and we look at, you know, the Chinese, the geostrategic first island chain that the Chinese see. Uh, Professor Toshi, uh, Dr. Toshi Yoshihara, you know, gave an SGL here and he shows a Chinese map, you know, from the Chinese uh, perspective that shows the first island chain extending all the way to the Aleutian Islands. And we know the Aleutian Islands, I mean, that's, they're the gateway to the Arctic, really. Um, So I guess, what I see from both China and Russia is is gaining the foothold in that region to be able to control those strategic sea lines of communication. Both China and Russia will benefit immensely from increased trade uh, along the uh, the northern sea route, which is the Russian uh, sea line of communication. Do you see, because of the Aleutian Islands and the Bering Strait and the geography, do you see that the U.S. still has any sort of strategic advantage um, in controlling it, but that we're just not taking advantage? Yeah, so I I would say that the Navy is getting, is doing more. Um, The Marine Corps is doing more in the Arctic. Um, The Marine Corps has stepped up Arctic training. Um, they're doing exercises in the Aleutians. Uh, Adak Island is, is one is one notable, notable example. And it doesn't have to be high-speed training, but it needs to be, let's pull our ships into Adak and let's do an offload. You know, 
let's let's emplace some Marines here for uh, you know a couple weeks and and focus on habitability, operations, training in the area. Um, however, the the DoD is at a disadvantage, I think, in a lot of ways because of of our geographic combatant command structure. And I talk about this in the Arctic uh, in the article. The I'll I'll admit in in my response paper, I had kind of had that focus on the mm-hmm. European Arctic, mm-hmm. if you will. And um, I think you raise a point that the convergence of these GCCs around the Bering Strait, these are my words, not yours, uh, are a blind spot. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that, that's a great way of saying it. And, and that's really the point that I was trying to make is that, you know, we've, we've created, you know, headquarters structures, uh, joint structures, four structures, the CJTF or Joint Task Force to be able to specifically um, address seams in our, our geographic combatant command structures. You know, there's a whole other discussion about whether our geographic alignment is even suitable for the level of cross-domain, inter-regional conflict that we're seeing and competition that we're seeing. But the point I was trying to make is that, you know, we have, because of the lack of prioritization in the Arctic, and, and kind of reviewing the history of the changes of the boundaries, we've, we've accepted risk in the Arctic, specifically in and around Alaska and the Bering Strait. I don't think we have the luxury of doing that in it anymore. And if you just think from a command and control perspective, from our experiences at the tactical and operational level, you know that any time you have converging boundaries in a small geographic area, it increases the chances of miscommunication, you know, uh, lack of positive control of tracking, you know, adversary threats across those boundaries, uh, and it, it just coordination becomes difficult. So one of the things that I, I tried to address is that, you know, without creating a master's thesis here, it was just saying, hey, you know, we have some structures that have proven effective in the past. Uh, we may want to consider those. And oh, by the way, if we do that, we can invite our European partners to participate in a the Pacific, security in the Pacific Arctic, uh, the Pacific side of the Arctic, and really secure you know, both, both sides of this strategic terrain, which is um, the Bering Strait and the GIUK guy. And you mentioned not only our partners in Europe, but also partners in Asia as well, mm-hmm. uh, who, for obvious reasons, have great interest in yeah. in how the Pacific develops yeah. over the next you know, century, uh, especially as the Arctic opens up with melting ice. And you spoke earlier about um, competing resources and, and attention and uh, and your suggestion on how to do that efficiently in the article is to set up a uh, combined joint task force within, I think, existing structures mm-hmm. uh, that are that are nearby mm-hmm. or in the Bering Strait. Um, why why did you why did you suggest that? Why did you go that, that route? Well, it was at the encouragement of my professor. Is you know, okay, you've identified a problem. You know, this seems feasible. This seems realistic. Uh, you know, at that time when I started writing, was, which was about January of, of 2019, there there was a growing 
you know, uh, growing response to Russian activity in the Arctic, but it wasn't as 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 prominent as, as it is right now. He's like, hey, what's your recommendation? How can we solve this? And to be honest with you, I didn't. I I, I wanted to bringing some of my thoughts from other research I was doing, which was the structure of United States power in the expression of our geographic command regional boundaries. So I, I saw this as an opportunity to bring these two topics together. And the CJTF, I was a part of a CJTF uh, in Iraq, CJTF OIR, temporary headquarters to, you know, meet a certain mission, bring the joint force together to defeat ISIS. But what I found most unique and most effective, at least from my perspective, I think a lot of people would argue the merits and effectiveness of the coalition. But, I mean, dozens of countries, from one person, you know, a country contributing one or two people to a country contributing hundreds or thousands. You know, it brought a, a large, diverse coalition together pretty effectively. And I saw that as an effective model. And also CJTF HOA, Horn of Africa, um, was established to address the threats, um, you know, in the Red Sea region, in the Bab el-Mendeb. And, you know, I saw that as an effective model um, that could be employed here. And more specifically, considering the resource constraints that the U.S. currently faces, that it had to be a feasible solution. And I saw that, you know, there's there's considerable, Army and Air Force has considerable force structure up in Alaska, and they're, over the last 20 years, have been supporting other missions. But, um, you know, really getting the Navy and the Marine Corps up there, uh, participating in exercises or deploying, doing a rotational basis under CJTF with support from our uh, allies and partners would come at very little opportunity cost in the near term. You mentioned, you know, some of your career and where you are. Mm -hmm. uh, you commissioned in 2007, right? 2007, yeah. So you've been in for, gosh, 13 years. 13 years, years yeah. yeah. This uh, August will be 13 years since, uh, since I commissioned. What brought you to MPS at this point in your career? Well, the Marine Corps, you know, the Education for Sea Power study came out with um, pretty wide analysis of, of education and requirements for education and the different analysis of the services and how they approach selecting for education. The Marine Corps competitively selects all officers to go to an advanced education. So for this period in my life, I got competitively selected in part of a large pool of Marine officers. And they pool all of the different um, intermediate level education opportunities into one screening board. And then based on your preferences or maybe your background, uh, they will select you to a certain program. So I got selected to come here. Um, I'm very glad and grateful I did. Um, and so far the Marine Corps hasn't, hasn't done wrong by me uh, in my career, so very grateful. I got competitively selected. Um, I was in Iraq in 2017. 
and I, I got here in, in December of 2018. What, uh, what were you doing at, at the time when you applied for the, do you, do you apply for this program in particular or it was just, it was part of the regular competitive selection for advanced education? You get competitively selected for what's called the Commandant's uh, Professional Education Board, uh, Intermediate Level Education Board. And then, and then you get matched. Yeah, like and then saying. so the first thing you get selected. Okay, you're you going to go the, to school. Yep, and then they're going to match you to a certain program, and then you have to apply to NPS. And I think that the NPS application is more of a formality to make sure that this guy wasn't, you know, pulling D's undergrad for this field of study. So it's it seems to be more of a, uh, you know. It, it, not a rigorous like acceptance and application process, but you know I actually did have to submit an application. More, more of an academic screening yeah. for a base qualification exactly. to attend yep. graduate studies. Yeah. What did you What did you intend to study when you came here initially? To be honest, I had no idea. I had no idea, and that's the frustration that I experienced here was that. You know, NPS is at this crossroads between DoD. Um, business and academia and I had all these expectations like I was going to come here and there would be a menu of things that the Marine Corps wanted me to study because we care about these things especially in this era of great power competition so I came here completely kind of taken aback that none of that was done and even more surprising Nobody was really talking about it and asking why isn't why hasn't this been done? Why is there not a better interaction between the students and research sponsors, uh, specifically your service? You know, I think as a as a Marine, it is not unreasonable to expect that your service has a list of research priorities that will help inform decisions especially in this time where all the services are, are really going through a, a massive change. You know, I wanted to ask a little bit more about your background, but I feel like that's naturally leading to uh, one of the articles mm -hmm. that uh, was published, uh, the one in the, um, well, as I, I look to make sure, the U.S. Naval Institute magazine proceedings mm -hmm. about uh, naval integration in the classroom. And one, one of the points you bring up in there is that these military education institutions uh, are or should be an, an incubator for um, research and ideas and advancement that can inform uh, the fleet uh, in, in the battlefield. So um, is, one, is one of your criticisms is that you found when you arrived here, I guess the Marine Corps lacking in having or at least having access to a list of research priorities that you feel like the Marine Corps yeah. should have. Yeah, I, yes. And I, I think one aspect, one aspect of the problem is actually the service consolidating its priorities and, and being analytic and deliberate in how it distills the, the guidance from the Commandant, the National Defense Strategy, and leverages the incredible intellectual capacity that it has in its PME institutions. Any year, the Marine Corps has about 500 officers, 500 in 
a graduate education program. 200 something in NPS alone. So why are we not leveraging that intellectual capital and that bandwidth on problems that are urgent to the Marine Corps? And, and like any school, you know, the officers that are coming here come from a very diverse set of backgrounds. So you can really leverage not only the operational experience, but the education uh, under the tutelage of a thesis advisor uh, and experience research to solve some, some significant problems for the Marine Corps. Do you think that goes, I guess, both ways? Do you think that goes both ways in the sense that um, would you have felt more limited to researching something like that uh, if the Marine Corps was offering a list of institutional um, research priorities, would you have felt limited to kind of work within that set of questions or priorities? Or do you, th um, or do you think as a student you still would have felt the freedom to go whichever route you felt was necessary? You know, that's often a, a, a criticism or that's often a criticism of the idea that, you know, we should have somebody telling us what's important or what we should research. You know, I take the approach that these are enabling constraints. You know, these are kind of guardrails for, to allow students and faculty to explore research topics, priority research. What you find is, and a perfect example is this morning, I was looking at the Joint Special Operations University research topic list for academic year 2021. And it does, what it does is it sparks curiosity, right? What, what we've tried to do here through the Marine Office is really connect the dots. So bring the research needs of the services to the people, so kind of supply and demand dynamics. Um, research supply being the students and faculty, the demand being the services and warfighting organizations. And it, it's really about collaborating. So it's not about here's this one research topic, but it's, well, who's the person asking the question? Okay, it's this three-star general at this command. You know, they're focused on cyber. Well, let me reach out to that cyber unit, that cyber command, and let me talk to their S&T directors. Let me talk to the principal investigators within that unit, and let's start the discussion. Because it's never as easy as just picking up a research question and be like, okay, I'm gonna explore this research question. You may generate five or six new research questions. Um, you may completely go in a different route, but it's the interaction between the research sponsor and the researcher that really creates that transformative you know experience I think for the researcher uh, namely the student is that collaborative effort something that's been developed over your time here that you've witnessed or is that was it in place when you yeah arrived? yeah and, and I would say that there's there's a lot of individual efforts and I think there's been at least I've witnessed within the Marine cohort uh, several successful case studies of good kind of fleet, what we call the fleet, like operating forces, student collaboration to really address key warfighter needs. Um, what 
we have found here, and I think is shared amongst many of the, the faculty uh, and students, is that there's not really an institutional culture that promotes interdisciplinary research, that, the, the, that promotes collaboration. Um, and that's something that I think will enhance the research experience for not only the faculty and students is, you know, breaking down those cylinders of excellence that are created within the schools and within each department and starting to work, collaborate um, horizontally, you know, laterally with uh, students from different departments, faculty from different departments. Because what you have, what I have found here is that you will have the schools and departments across campus working on similar problem sets. And they don't even know they're working on the same problem. It's, it's mind boggling. Um, and that's not a symptom of NPS, that's the symptom of the DOD, the Department of Navy, the Marine Corps writ large. It's just a function of how big our, our bureaucracy has become and, and the research and education enterprise. So that's not, uh, that's not unique to NPS. However, NPS is in a, a unique position to, to break down those stovepipes and really leverage the interdisciplinary expertise that are found in the faculty and students here. What do you feel enabled you to see those stovepipes here at NPS? How, do, how, how, what experience did you have that made you look into the different areas that NPS is exploring? Which is something that the podcast is going to try to do as well, is, you know, you know, pulling from each of the different schoolhouses and to help make the, um, NPS community at large uh, more aware of all the different pieces and of the puzzle that are uh, taking place here, all the research, mm -hmm. all the topics, all the uh, advancements in technology. And so maybe through listening to this, uh, you know, somebody will hear about a research interest that they have yeah. that's already going on. Yeah, it, that's a great question. And I think um, being so involved in what was going on at campus early on in my first, you know, two quarters, three quarters, allowed me to get a really good sense of what was going on around campus. And I immediately saw through my own personal relationships with other Marines and other cohorts, and just, just moving around campus is that there's a lot of overlapping research happening and not a lot of people talking to each other. So I often would meet someone in defense analysis and, you know, hey, this is what they're studying. Hey, I know a guy in NSA who's focused on the same thing. Why don't you guys talk to each other, or at least just share notes, you know, share research sources, help each other out. Um, and what I would find is, you know, I had a friend in the oceanography and meteorology curriculum, and he's focusing on things that would be important to the marine reconnaissance community. And, you know, I asked, have you ever, you know, do you know that this would help the marine reconnaissance? And had never crossed his mind that the research he was doing would be something that might be applicable to marines, you know, doing, you know, uh, 
beach reconnaissance. So not only you know cross school research, but also cross service, joint, yeah. international, yeah. Uh, intellectual minds that we have here and the human capital. Uh, that's something that you wrote about in in your article. Is that you know an, an argument that you make is that. Um, there's a call for greater naval integration, meaning uh, within the service, mm -hmm. meaning the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Marine Corps. And uh, you, you make an argument that, hey, it starts in the classroom. It starts in professional military education. Uh, but I think that you see um, or are showing kind of a, a, a lack of um, a lack of that integration taking place across services. Yeah. As in, um, as an uh, yeah. underrepresentation of maybe the, the uh, Marines in a naval school and yep. vice versa. Yeah, and I, and I think you still see that here. You know, you can look at a classroom at MPS and you'll see an extremely diverse classroom. And I, I say that in diverse in all aspects, gender, um, you know, race, you know, country of origin, rank, um, but we're, we're not very intentional about leveraging the effect of that diversity. Um, now, I'm speaking from NSA itself, um, and it's not that it's intentionally unintentional and it's leveraging that diversity, but we're not approaching a lot of problem sets as a multi-domain interagency and joint problem set. You know, we're, we're focused on one domain for this class. You know, it might be cyber effects. But how are we addressing that problem across the services, you know? And how are we leveraging the experience of the students? And, and I think that's, that's the direction that, you know, joint PME is going, even though um, I qualify, you know, NPS is not a PME school. Correct. It's a graduate education. But I think being more intentional and how we are leveraging the joint force at NPS to make sure that joint equities are always um, are always considered when we're talking about these problems in the classroom is important for the development of the students, but also to solve these problems in a joint manner. Um, there was the uh, joint integrated campaigning pub that came out by the joint staff in March of 2018 that really highlights the necessity of joint integrated campaigns. And, you know, when I talked about naval integration, it was really a, I wrote that article doing some research on another topic. And I started just going through browsing the different websites uh, for Naval War College, Marine Corps University. I read the E4S study, and in the back of an annex was a series of responses by then Brigadier General Bowers, the president of Marine Corps University. And he was essentially pleading the survey administrators, which was the E4S study team, hey, we have no naval officers here. Like, we keep asking, you know, we're supposed to have this many, but we have this many, which was almost none. Uh, I think it had been one or two. I remember when I was a student at Expeditionary Warfare School as a captain, then Colonel Donovan, now I think he's Major General Donovan, would talk all the time about naval integration uh, and the need to have naval Navy students representing 
Navy Equities in a school dedicated solely to amphibious expeditionary operations. Um, so I, I had been in, in kind of inculcated with this idea of naval integration, but it wasn't really until I started doing that research that I realized how big of a problem it was. And in that article, you see the different percentages at Naval War College. The Army has way more students at Naval War College than the Marine Corps. I think the Air Force does. The Air too, Force does. International students. Which people think, like, well, the Army's, you know, over twice the size of the, the Marine Corps, so you should expect a, a representative population. You know, my argument is that if we are serious about naval integration between the Navy and the Marine Corps, you know, we got to put our money where our mouth is. And naval integration in the classroom costs us nothing. Or there's little, there's little barrier and opportunity costs with saying, you know, I'm going to increase, you know, my lieutenant colonel uh, enrollment at the Naval War College, as opposed to trying to staff a naval headquarters with a bunch of Marine officers uh, who have no experience um, working with their Navy counterparts. In the school, it's, it's easy. We can take intellectual risk. You know, I don't have that luxury, you know, in the COC in the battlefield. I don't have that luxury when I'm forward deployed. So I think if we want to get serious about naval integration, uh, it, it should start in the classroom because low opportunity costs, low risk, and just all in all uh, good for the education of our officers and, and enlisted. Um, over your experience and time, you know, professionally uh, out in the field and and or academically, mm -hmm. and what's what's one of the uh, dumbest things you've done? What you know, if you if you had a, a failing, uh, and how that how that turn out? You know, that's you know, I've <laughs> not that I was uh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask that type of question, but it's a hard question to ask, and I think part of it is has to do with my or it's a hard question to answer because it it's more about my my shortcomings as an individual, and I think more about me not wanting to fail and me maybe not taking risk. But the, the times that I've been most ashamed might be a harsh word, but hardest on myself is when I have made a comfort-based decision. And in the Marine Corps, especially in the infantry, comfort-based decisions can be disastrous. Um, and you know, it could be something very mundane, but it also could be something consequential. And you know, I've never made one um, that was consequential, but I would say that, you know, one time where I made a dumb decision that I'll always regret was the time I rode in the cab of a truck when my Marines, when it was freezing out, and my Marines were riding in the back of the truck. And I'll, it, it's one of those ones where if I could take it back, I would have just sucked up the 45-minute ride out of the training area. It was snowing. It was freezing. Um, we were just at our, our, our large certification exercise, and we had this freak snowstorm. It was dumping snow. We had just spent like a day and a half in, in soaking wet. And 
I went for the comfort-based decision. Man, I liked you right up until about right I, now. You know, like and a that's dick move. <laughs> it, it was bad. It was bad. And uh, you know, it's it's. I, I don't. You you may never have. You may never have been held accountable for that decision. Or I I was never. But it's one of those things, and we talked about the Marine Corps planting these seeds of, you know, the guideposts. And that's one of those guideposts that I learned from that decision because it's haunted me the rest of my career. Ever (laughs) since. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I think that's one of those times where you're like, man, that was a dumb move. That's an opportunity to show your Marines that you care. You don't have to stand up on on a pedestal. You don't have to. You just say, hey, can you make a room for me? Or you say, hey, why don't one of you hop up in the hop up in the, the cab, or maybe that's a reward. Hey, Corporal so-and-so, you did a great job out there. I'm really proud of you. Do me a favor, go sit up in front, you navigate, you know, be the A driver for for the the guy who's driving. And, you know, you don't get those opportunities to relive those opportunities, but you have an opportunity not to make that same mistake again. And that's always one that will that will haunt me. And that I've, I've I learned very quickly from that experience as a second lieutenant now as a major so uh, I hope my Marines will forgive me if they're listening uh, <laughs> for suffering that you know that hour-long freezing uh, truck ride well what can other what can other professions learn from your experience um, as a Marine Corps officer like if you if you were to go out into the, the business world today or somewhere else um, what would you take with you good question that's it's you know, deep, right? That's too much, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I think it's 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 a fantastic question. It's um, you know, I've I've had. It's, it's caring, you know. Letting, like being genuine and sincere about caring, for people and their needs, and that's a really hard thing in the military, um, because we always kind of we always say this term like mission first, right? That has priority. And then people. You know, I, I like this person, I like this phrase my, my commander used to say is, you know, mission first people always. And I I was a, had the opportunity to be a, the head coach of a high school lacrosse team uh, in Woodbridge, Virginia. And that was a great opportunity to put the needs of, of those young men first. You know, and really kind of see life through their perspective and it wasn't always easy but I would I would my advice to anybody is to to care about your people you know put them first take care of their needs first but the flip side of that is is it can never be at your own self-destruction you know if I'm if I'm a man or a woman who their personal life is falling apart (laughs) you know how can I help others if I can't help myself? Sure. You know, and I think that's a that's the balance, and that's that's the exciting thing about being an officer in the military is that there is no other profession I think where the cost is so high and the 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 demands are so great that it's it's a it's the pressure cooker, as Admiral Stockdale would say. You know, being wearing the cloth of our country is the pressure cooker, and it. It's, it's con- all this pressure, life, professional, really helps to shape you um, into being a better person. And you, know, you really have to be intentional about 
establishing good habits, you know, seeking self-improvement, and and finding the balance between taking care of the needs of your your teammates, your subordinates, and even your bosses. Leading up is something that I've grown uh, I've grown to appreciate. Is what are you doing to take care of your boss? You know, giving him or her the loyalty that they deserve. You know, asking about their welfare. You know, because as officers, it gets lonely as you get more senior. So, you know, 360 leadership from the perspective is that, you know, when you're an officer, you kind of have a responsibility for all those around you. Because we, we hear about 360 a yeah. lot, and I think people always look around and they forget to look up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, General Zinni, when I was at Expeditionary Warfare School, you know, a lot of retired general officers want to come. EWS in the Marine Corps is a very, a very esteemed school. It's your 225 captains. You're all kind of mid. You're, you're at the eight to eleven year mark in your career. You have just enough time in the service to really, ha- have, to understand the institution, and you're about to go embark on, probably the most transformative experience which is that company level command you know you're about to go to assume uh, a billet a leadership billet in an organization so a lot of general officers who have been through that school want to come back and they want to talk to us and uh, General Zinni you know talked about loyalty going both ways and he's absolutely right and some of the mistakes I've made as a as a officer have been too much loyalty in one direction, and that's usually down. You know, thinking that, you know, I was somehow serving my Marines better by focusing less on the needs of my company commander, and I was wrong. Well, that's a lesson in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, sometimes taking care of your subordinate troops, Marines, what have you, is about taking care of your boss and the mission needs mm-hmm. and the discipline of the unit. Yeah. And that's part of taking care of your people. It's not about all the time your loyalty to them or taking it easy on somebody. That's not taking care of them. It's providing that, that consistency and the structure uh, in which they can be successful. That's 100% right. And that's that's, that's a great point is, is providing the structure and it's it's the responsibility of a subordinate is to look at, to take my commander's intent and say, okay, what's my span of control? Where's my authority as a, as a junior commander within my boss's intent? And it's creating that framework of where my subordinates can thrive, you know? Um, and it's also about communicating your boss's priorities, owning them, and then communicating those to your subordinates and I can I you know I I was a company commander you know having leading officers for the first time and I could see how difficult it is when you have as a commander you may have subordinates not rowing together you know what a drag on the performance of the unit that is when maybe one company is rowing against the current or one person, one company commander is rowing against a current. So you apply that to any organization. And you can start to see a large organization where you start creating a lot of 
force and movement in the wrong direction. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to be the guy who just stifles critique or criticism. You want to be somebody, you want to be a leader who can understand what the problems are. What is this, what is causing this inertia? You know, what is the resistance in this organization to change or adopting, you know, your, your kernel's, you know, guidance? And then building yeah. those bridges is, is kind of what, what, what our job is, is building those bridges. I know you said that you need uh, the Marine Corps just as much as it needs you, right? Well, I but would if you I, didn't join, you would, you would probably say it doesn't really need you. The, the Marine Corps does not need Ryan Tice. But I, 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 I would disagree, I, I think, in that uh, I think the Marine Corps, you know, need, needs everyone who wants to be a part of it and wants to serve in a capacity like you, mm -hmm. as that without people taking the time to uh, do what you've done and reflect on the greater mission and the needs of uh, the nation, and to serve the nation, mm -hmm. then we wouldn't have the Marine Corps. Yeah. We wouldn't have yeah. the United States as we know Fair it today. Enough. You're uh, leaving NPS soon to go instruct at the U.S. Naval Academy mm -hmm. in Annapolis. Uh, maybe that's the perfect opportunity to start uh, hypnotizing some of these midshipmen with your ideas and yeah, and uh, and starting at, at uh, you know before before they even commission and they're going to go both ways, you know, out into the Navy and the Marine Corps from that school. And uh, do, do you think ideas like that are being discussed there right now? You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to speak for. You know, or misspeak, or misrepresent the Naval Academy because I'm not there. You're, you're, you don't work there yet. Yeah, sure. I don't know. I don't work there <laughs> yet. But I would say that uh, based on where they are in their careers, I doubt it. Um, you know, and I think that's a great opportunity. You know, oftentimes. We, we tend to frame discussions about important issues based on rank and seniority or experience. And the more, I, the more senior I get, the more I realize how important it is to start, you know, not shielding, you know, some of our younger officers and, and enlisted from these important topics, but actually bring them into these discussions and help them understand that their future is about shaping these outcomes, you know, and that they have a say. And I hope, you know, whether it's, you know, what's going on in the Arctic or it's naval integration in the classroom or the 15 other topics I, you know, I'm curious about, you know, I can have those discussion with these midshipmen and, and spark their curiosity. Not, you know, our goal should never be to tell them how to think. Okay, here's what Tice thinks. So therefore, I want you to think that way because that justifies my way of thinking. But hey, here's a here's a kernel. Here's a kernel of information. You know, I want you to be able to think critically about it and form your own assessment and opinions and um, and be able to, you know, discern, you know, what what's right you know the context for which you should understand this problem and really the context for which you should apply this problem uh, or solutions to that problem you know i'm really excited for the opportunity to go to naval academy and i think um you know it's it's about relationships you know it's never it's 
it's never going to be about the things I say. There, it's going to be about the things I do. Um, and I think that's a, an also an important, you know, thing that I've learned at NPS is that, you know, you can you can spend a lot of time wasting breath, you know, talking about what should change. You know, there's no shortage of opinions at NPS about how things should be, but it's it's about the doing, you know, and. When you're doing things, you're meeting people, you're having these discussions that we're having here, and that's that's where those bonds are made, and that's what will carry you on the battlefield. Because maybe one day Mike Morris and Ryan Tice will meet up on the battlefield, and this two hours we've spent sharing this, you know, sharing this time this morning will will establish a foundation of trust, you know, of of you know intellectual respect that will help us carry the day you know, when our nation needs us. So, you know, we we often get so caught up in, you know, the topic, whether it's artificial intelligence, you know, this, this ambition of generating new knowledge um, for our service. We talk a lot about robotics, AI, you know, machine learning, drones. And we spend less time at MPS talking about relationships, you know, and the importance of of a relationship and how the classroom, you know, the 15 to 20 people in the classroom, those are your brothers and sisters, you know, Um, and that that relationship and the preservation of that relationship is way more valuable than that research paper. How did you find that relationship um, affected by our online environment? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you, you, I yearn for the, I yearn for the ability to look somebody in the eyes and, and judge, not judge, that's a bad word, but to, to judge their expressions, to understand, you know, the context of their facial expressions and, you know, how they perceived what I said, you know, based on their body language, you lose that in the online environment. Why? Because everybody's distracted. You know, everybody's, you know, doing five other things behind uh, the video screen. So I, I think it, it will have a, it will change the dynamic of the NPS experience for a lot of people. Um, for the not for the better. Um, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of good with the transition to online, knowing that you know quickly we could adapt if if circumstances um, require it. I think that's something that MPS did very well, and I think that's something they should be proud of. But I I don't think that we should ever think that the human interaction between students and their professor um, is not the most important aspect of the classroom environment. You know, it's that, it's that human relationship that, uh, you know, you will never take the human dimension out of, you know, conflict, out of war, out of combat, and that's exactly why we're here, is to be better warfighters and to leverage that intellectual, um, that intellectual capability and capacity. So. That's insightful to me. I hadn't yet framed it 
uh, about how uh, that human element in education applies just as much to how we operate in the fleet. It's, you know, you hear this talk, this word used um, a lot nowadays with kind of what's going on around society and just within our, our own services is empathy, right? How do you empathize with someone who you can't see or you can't look at in the eyes? How can you understand where they are coming from? The ability to feel what they feel or to understand how they're feeling. You can't do that remotely, right? And I, I think, you know, one of the things that's always intrigued me is, you know, empathy is very much the, the one trait, which I argue is, is probably a core leadership trait um, that is really the bedrock and foundation for all the other leadership traits that we promote in the, the DOD. So we have to be very careful about what we're going to lose if we were to go to a, a, you know, a model where we're going to do it virtually as a, as a matter of business. Um, and that's what I'm, you know, the Naval Academy is struggling with how to balance that as well because there's something unique about the military academy experience that is very personal, right? I'm there to teach, but that's like 49% of my job. 51% of my job is to be a good role model. How do I, how do I be a good role model behind a computer, right? How, how does someone just looking at the webcam yeah version of you yeah. uh, know who you really are exactly. without having met exactly. you. Yeah. You know, how do you look at, you know, I've tried to look in somebody's eyes, like looking into the, the, the video camera on my MacBook, and I'm like, you can't look into somebody's eyes. You know, and that's, that's, the, that's the connection that you will never be able to replicate virtually. Uh, I'm sure there's people who are working on that at NPS, like how to make eye contact, uh, <laughs> right. maybe maybe you know, we'll virtually. Have... But uh, I, you know, <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing that will separate. Uh, you know, you'll never be able to take out the human dimension of conflict, and at least I hope we don't. Uh, that'll be a da- uh, a bad day for humanity uh, once we do. And you know, I, I think in the classroom. You know, especially in an organization like NPS, we have to be very careful about you know what are the costs of of adaptation to a virtual le- learning environment. Well, and I think we we heard that from Admiral McMullen, for example, in his uh, uh, SecNav guest lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, is that you know, we're all warrior thinkers, right? Mm-hmm. And um, if we can't come together uh, as a group and learn from each other in that way. I think lacking that physical connection, that presence that we share in the classroom uh, detracts from our ability to support each other in the sense that, you know, we are able to learn from each other Mm -hmm. and those experiences. Um, Me having only been here for the one quarter so far and being online, I feel like there is so much more discussion, especially interaction with other students that I'm lacking. Mm-hmm. You know, usually on a 10 minute break or something, we'd probably all be together. That's when you talk. You can talk after class. You can, if you come early, you can meet before class. You can study in the library together. You can figure things out from each other. And instead, 10 minutes, webcam's off, 
you go, you know, you go use the facility or pour yourself another cup of coffee, what have you, and then webcam is back on, lecture, lecture starts again. And it feels much more like a lecture, even in these classes that are meant to be seminars. Um, there's, there's uh, you know, it feels like minimal participation to me uh, because we're so unfamiliar with each other. There's, there's a deprivation, and I call it deprivation very, I use the term deprivation um, because I, I want it to mean something precise, is that it shuts out all these different sensory experiences, right? You, you end class and you're alone, you know? Whereas I think you hit it best is you, you take a break and you go, hey, man, what did you mean But when you said that? Hey, that was a great point. You know, I, I really enjoyed that contribution. Hey, can we talk more about that, you know, over lunch? Or you go to the library and you run into, you know, a, a friend that you had in class last quarter and you haven't seen him for a while and you catch up. You know, or you talk, you have, you catch, you have a coffee with one of your professors or your thesis advisor. You know, what I experienced in this quarter, uh, being at home, you know, I had to, I had to shut myself out from my family to be able to focus on the schoolwork and the thesis. How but, do they feel about that? Well, I'll, are I'll they be, supportive? No. Well, they're <laughs> they're supportive because you know they don't really have a choice. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, my success is, it, you know, my family's success is many ways bound to my success, both in and out of the classroom. So, and as a leader of the family, um, you know, that, that, that impacts them. And it really hit home where my, my daughter, my oldest daughter, didn't know I was in the room, but she was talking to my wife. And she said, Mommy, I think we saw Daddy more in our last duty station than now. And this is when I'm home, right? And this is how she, this is a six-year-old perceiving my absence. Why? Because I'm physically there, but emotionally absent, you know? I have to break away because I have to, you know, write, finish this chapter in my thesis. I have to tune out because I have five hours of Zoom classes. Whereas opposed to where, where you know, maybe on deployment, I'm not there and they can adjust. They can adapt their life to my absence. Where here, they can adapt to my absence because I'm present. You know, I'm, I'm having breakfast. I'm leaving the office. They're seeing me. I have to go back in the office. You know, I have to shut them out so I can focus on school. And and that really struck home as, as, a, as an unintended consequence of, on one hand, I, didn't wa I wasn't wasting a lot of time transitioning between classes, getting to campus. Um, but at the same time, you know, I am present, but unavailable. It, it's, um, and they're perceiving, I guess, almost like you're off limits to them, even when you're in the house. Yeah, a lot of times, yeah. And thank, you know, thankfully my wife was, you know, knew how to protect that. Like, okay, daddy's got, you know, distract them. So, it, you know, they didn't sit there and cry but it's like, you know, your kids are scratching at your door because they want to spend time with you. Um, literally scratching at your door, like trying to get in. You know, you got to lock them out. That's, that doesn't make you feel good. Um, 
No, it wouldn't. And it's also, you know, it's also talk about for a lot of young children, this is their 9-11, right? And uh, what, what, you know, I was a freshman in college when 9-11 happened and, you know, that changed our our generation of Americans. And COVID-19, I think, is is our kids, our that generation, their 9-11. At the same time, kids are pretty resilient. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's a chance that a lot of them will forget kind of the strange spring and summer, the strange year that we're having? Um, it is it is significant, you know, the I, I suppose the there must be some preliminary data coming up that the mental health effects on on children during this must be fairly significant as well and how it's going to affect their perceptions in the future as adults Um, i would i would have a hard time believing that it wouldn't now every experience is different different and i would say that uh we have we're from the northeast new jersey new york city you know i have a sister-in-law who lives in brooklyn they literally haven't left their apartment in months. <laughs> a tiny apartment in the urban jungle of Brooklyn. I thought it was bad enough being stuck in my yeah. house in Carmel. Yeah. And, and, you, and you come to a place like Monterey that has a ton of outdoor activity, you know, space to move, relatively, you know, uh, unaffected by the virus. And my neighborhood has been, you know, any, it has been a utopia for children why because there's all the families are quarantined together you know we're isolating together we're working together we're helping each other out the kids are are playing every day outside in a safe environment um yeah but they're not uh, they're not not exposed to it you know it it has affected the discussions amongst the parents the interactions amongst the adults um you know the social distancing aspect you know, my children, you know, we'd pray at dinner and they would say, you know, I, I hope uh, our family doesn't die of coronavirus. And they, like, this is the thing, this is a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And they, they, they are a lot more perceptive and intuitive than most adults will give their kids credit for. So it's important it, during times like this is that you're listening to those things, those cues that they know what's going on this is affecting them and you know your responsibility as a parent is to help them through you know make sense of this situation and put it into perspective for them at a six a six-year-old four-year-old level but they know you know my my mother has health issues you know that our our their grandparents are at the high risk age you know and they are they kind of maybe like uh afraid like Hey, I can't hug grandma right now if, if she were visiting. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, I think a lot of it, you know, just most everybody now, you start to realize there's people who have been affected. I've, I know a lot of people who have lost parents, you know, uh, to the coronavirus. You know, they were immunocompromised, you know, in their, you know, 60s or 70s, and they, they caught the virus and unfortunately... Uh, didn't survive and and you know for our kids it's they they sense that you know they know their grandparents and they they hear us talking on the phone with our parents like you know making sure they're they're safe and they're they're taking the precautions and especially you know where we're from in New Jersey it was hit very hard 
especially our area, uh, Essex County. So, you know, you're concerned, you know, and you're, you know, they're concerned and, you know, it's traumatic for them, you know, thinking about these heavy issues at such a young age. Is that the area you grew up in? Yeah, northern New Jersey, uh, a town called Nutley, uh, born and raised in that area, Essex County, a very densely populated area, uh, right next to Newark, New Jersey, which is the largest city in New Jersey and about 10 miles uh, west of Manhattan. So, you know, growing up, you could see the New York City skyline from our our town and specifically the Twin Towers uh, were very prominent Okay. Uh, in our town. So, is that something that impacted your decision to join the military, or do you think even before you went to college? Yeah. You, know, you said it was your freshman year, right? Yeah. So, you know, I I remember exactly where I was when you know we first got uh, the the warning. I was in economics class, and someone said, "How do they think that a plane flying into the World Trade Center is going to affect the economy?" And everybody's like, "What are you talking about?" And then we went back to our dorms, and it was like the second plane flying into the, the, the building and it was it, it did affect it did affect I think in 2001 I was a freshman I was talking about you know I, I was like I'm gonna enlist I had no idea what any of this meant I didn't come from a, uh, a family of military service so I didn't have anybody you know I was just you know grasping at straws in the dark and one teacher had encouraged me to say get your degree finish your degree Um, when I look back and I you know I really am honest about why I joined the Marine Corps I needed to join the Marine Corps I needed the Marine Corps I without getting too much into my childhood and psychoanalyzing myself (laughs) on a podcast you know I there was a lot of things in my upbringing that um, you know I was left needing, uh, and the Marine Corps gave me that. Um, I had always told myself I wanted to be in the military. I, you know, my dad kept things from when I was like 10 years old about being a soldier and wanting to serve my country. So I think I've always grown up with that sense of service, that willingness to serve. Um, I'm not sure where I got it from, but you know, it was always there. I think the Marine Corps was the first time in my life where I had a this moral compass, this guidepost for which I could lead my life, to put me on a trajectory, to be a better version of myself. Like, I needed that. I needed the discipline. I needed the structure. I needed the, uh, I, I needed something to be the mirror that I could look in and say, hey, what are you doing? Is this the path you want to take with your life? And the Marine Corps gave me that. It was instantaneous. Excellent. How do we communicate these ideas to our senior leaders? How do we, how do we in we, we spoke about relationships and empathy and NPS and other institutions like it as an incubator of ideas. How do we how do we best uh, get our senior leaders to take notice and listen to some of these I mean I'm sure and and I don't imply that they don't but I guess what what strategy do you see we we using as an institution like this well well I think the first starts at the personal level it's taking the intellectual risk and a good example is the Bering Strait paper is that um, one of my professors encouraged me to submit it as an article 
I had not. I didn't have the self-confidence, you know, because you write it on paper, you submit it for publication, it's for consumption and criticism. And you open yourself up to criticism. That's a great personal risk as well. Isn't yeah, it? a professional risk, right? And this kind of goes into learning and education and, you know, innovation is, is being able to take intellectual risk. NPS is, is the place where you can and should be taking intellectual risk, not only with your research, with, but with your participation in the classroom. There are platforms, even at NPS right now, and within kind of NPS's sphere of influence that provide great opportunities to get engaged. You have to seek those out. You have to be an information seeker. And if you want to be heard, you have to seek out those opportunities. And you can't be afraid to say, hey, I have an idea. You know, I think a lot of times what I've seen here is the difference between, you know, the military and academia. Academia promotes the professors have to promote themselves, have to promote their ideas, you know, and they do a good job of it. And it's not hubris. It's not arrogance. Whereas in the military, we reject any notion of, you know, an officer or enlisted Marine, you know, standing up in front of everybody and say, hey, look at me, I have this great idea. You know, we want to be humble. We want to be, um, we, we, we want to stay out of the limelight. And that's not to say that you're seeking self-aggrandizement um, if you're promoting your ideas, but that's what it takes. Nobody's gonna seek out Ryan Tice and be like, hey, Tice, so what do you think about this? Sometimes you have to stand up and say, hey, sir, ma'am, I have an idea. You know, do you mind if I share this with you? And, and let the idea stand on its own merits, you know? Um, and I think that's the difference is seeking out the opportunities um, yourself and just being an information seeker and taking intellectual risk. That's, this might seem uh, simple, but I think that's one of the things I've witnessed here is that an institution like this that uh, even though we're in the military, that the majority of the week we wear business casual to school and it's an opportunity to shed egos and yeah. shed rank and exchange ideas. You know, I mentioned the diversity of the classroom before and I, I just, I want to echo that NPS is, I mean, by far my most um, rewarding and enriching intellectual experience that I've had in my life. Um, and here's why. At any class that I've had, you know, I've had a diverse, diverse classroom experience, whether it was international officers or an ensign straight out of an NROTC unit. And I think what I've, what I had to do is put my rank at the door, put my experiences, check that at the door, and let people's ideas stand on its own merit and give them the respect in 